Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Colossians 3, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to call it simply the new man in Christ. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, Paul talked all about legalism and how legalism is useless in making one, in making one holy. And legalism is bad, bad, bad. And now he's going to go from that, focusing on uh, how legalism will not make you holy. And Colossians 3 is going to focus on how our emphasis on the new man, who we are in Christ, our standing in Christ, and our position in Christ in heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, how our position in Christ is going to make us be able to walk in a manner that is holy. So we start with verse 1 of Colossians 3. So if you have been raised with the Messiah, and of course they had been, seek what is above where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Now that if, if you have been raised with the Messiah, it sounds like Paul is expressing some kind of doubt that they have been raised with the Messiah, and that is not so. The translation loosely should be since you have been raised with the Messiah. The reason this occurs so much is that the if there is a E-I-Epsilon Iota A in Greek, and that is the start of a first-class conditional clause. The first-class conditional makes the if clause assumed to be true for the sake of argument. And, of course, sometimes it could be actually true and sometimes actually be false. For example, if you have not been raised with Christ, then you are of all men most miserable. In that case, it would be assumed for the sake of argument, but, of course, would not be true. So, technically, it should be if... But let's face it, we don't talk that way. So the NIV translation, which is a looser translation, much more closer to the way we actually talk, has it so since you have been raised with the Messiah, because it's a hypothetical that's assumed to be true, and it is true. So we say since. All right, so since you have been raised with the Messiah, how how has the Christian been raised with the Messiah? Now what Paul is going to do here, he's going to proceed to describe the Christian's standing before God. In other words, who they are in Christ, their position, their standing. And then he's going to go from that to, well, if this is who we are, then this is how we ought to walk and live in this life. So what is the Christian's standing or his status in Christ? For example, he's resurrected, raised with the Messiah here in verse 1. He's risen to heaven. Seek what is above where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. That's in heaven, and that's where we are. And also, the Christian is glorified, Colossians 3, 3, two verses later, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you're hidden in Christ with God, that means you're in glory. So we have a very good position. And so starting from that, Paul will then say, okay, now, since this is who you are, this is how you ought to walk. For example, you need to get rid of sin in your life, verse 5, Colossians 3. Put to death then your members that are upon the earth, whoredom, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and the covetousness which is idolatry. Your larger list of sins there, Colossians 3, 8, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language. So there's going to be a lot of what you ought not to do here. But we need to remember, Paul is not really focusing on those sins. He's focusing on who the Christian is in Christ. And I'm going to Turn to this as a recurring theme in this chapter. If you want to get rid of sin, you need to focus on Jesus, not on the sin. You focus on the sin too much, you end up arousing. You end up getting under the law. I should not do that sin. And we know that the law arouses sin. It increases sin. It does not destroy sin. But focusing on Jesus and who you are and where you are 
That, my friends, will get rid of sin because Jesus doesn't have anything to do with sin. And if you identify with Jesus, if you know that you're a new man, redeemed, walking in a new life, that Christ is in union with you, in you, Christ in union with you, the hope of glory, well, then it's sort of hard to sin when you're living your life like that. And that's what we want. We want to get rid of sin. As I mentioned earlier in chapter 2, Paul had pointed out that the Colossians had died to the law in order to live to Christ. For example, in Colossians 2.20, he said, If you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, that's the law, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Why do you come up with all these laws that you have to obey? That's not going to get you saved. Excuse me, not going to get you sanctified. Now, here's some scriptures to show that we have indeed been raised with the Messiah. That means our position is in heaven with the resurrected Jesus, Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We were buried. That was when our old man was crucified, buried, put away. You were also raised with him. That means we were resurrected with him. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Romans 6, 4 through 7, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism and death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, that means when we are crucified, our old man, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, we are going to be resurrected like he was resurrected. Except our resurrection will be our new man. Eventually it will be our glorified body too, but right now it's our spirits which have been made alive and made anew. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Romans 8:11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. And that's talking about our eventual physical resurrection, but also the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us now, lives in you. And if he lives in us, well, hey, Jesus is above. and he, Jesus, In other words, Jesus is in heaven and Jesus is in us. So let's put our minds where Jesus is. At the right hand of God, the right hand is the position of power and authority. The Messiah has every bit, the Jesus the Christ, the Messiah has every bit of power and authority that God the Father has. And guess who's living in us? That same Jesus who has all that power and authority. So why would we not seek what is above? Matthew 6:33. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Well, if we seek the Messiah that is above, if we look for him, guess what? All matter of righteousness will be provided for us. That's where Paul's going with this chapter. Verses 2 and 3 of Colossians 3. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Messiah in God. Since we have been raised with Christ, as Paul says in verse 1, it makes sense to set our minds on what is above, as he says in verse 2. Because above is where Jesus is. Colossians 1.5 says this, Because of the hope reserved for you where? In heaven, you have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel. So that's our our goal, our end in heaven. And that hope is a confident expectation of the future in heaven. So should we focus on our sinful earthly members, in other words, our sins, or should we focus on Jesus in heaven? Paul says right here, set your minds on what is above, not of what is on the earth. Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven, and he is in us, so let's focus on that. If you focus on your sins, what is on the earth, and that refers to your, as we'll see later on in verse 5, your earthly members, the the, the members of your flesh, your flesh, in other words, that which does sin in your life, 
You focus on that, and you're not going to be focused on Jesus, and you're not going to conquer those sins. Verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Now, when Paul says you have died, what does that mean? Have the Colossians died biologically? Obviously not. They're still living. Have they died morally? Obviously not. They were morally dead before they got saved, but now they're made alive by Christ, as Paul's getting ready to tell them. Why would Paul call the Colossians morally dead? Well, you're just a bunch of shipwrecked sinners who can't do anything right. No, he didn't say that. So he's not talking about morally dead. Are you, for you have died legally before God, God's going to throw you into hell, obviously not. They're saved. So what does he mean? You have died. You have died to the law, and you have died to sin. As John Gill points out, they were under no condemnation. That's how they died. They died to the law, which kills and which slays. Their old man had died, and their new man had come alive. And now their life was hidden with the Messiah. Hidden means it's, you know, you look at somebody, and they a Christian, they look like a normal human being, but actually, where is their life? Their life spiritually is in Jesus, because they're in union with Jesus, and the world might not see it, but that's where they are. With the Messiah in God. Talk about union with Christ. You're with the Messiah, and you're in union with God. In, in union with the God that made the universe. He's in you. Now, why would such a creature want to sin, given your status? Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be, will be revealed with him in glory. Christ is our life because he is in us. We are one nature with him, so he gives us the ability to live. So Christ, who is our life, Christ is the one who gives us life. He's the one who allows us to life, to live. We don't live because we're focusing on sins and knocking them out of their lives. We focus on Christ. He's our life. And then when we live as Christ will live in the world, sin disappears even as a the flip of a light switch. And the light instantly kills the darkness just by being light. Well, Jesus is light. He's the light of our life. If we allow him to shine in our life, we will kill sin even as light kills darkness in a room. Now, when Christ is revealed, that's probably referring to Christ's second coming, as the NIV study Bible, John Gill and Adam Clark say, when Christ is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. And that shows that we have a glorious end here. We're glorified with him. I earlier said that when Paul was talking about his standing, that it was verse 3. It's actually verse 4 that shows the glorification. Here's some scriptures that talk about us being revealed with Christ. John 11:25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So Jesus is our ultimate life. He's not necessarily talking about our physical life, but he, he's talking about our eternal life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. If he dies physically, he's still going to live spiritually. John 14:6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am life, and we are one with him. We are identified with him. We are resurrected with him. Our old man was crucified with him. Our new man is resurrected with him, and that means we're going to live eternally. Jesus says, I came to give you eternal life. That means life that lasts forever, as well as life that is characterized by the state of eternity. It's not bad. It's not a bad deal. Focus on that, folks. You're not going to be sinning. Colossians 3, 5. I'm using the Young's literal translation here. Put to death then your members that are upon the earth, whoredom, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and the covetousness which is idolatry. Now, this phrase, the members that are upon the earth, that's a literal translation. It's difficult to translate. Here are some other translations which say the same as Young's literal translations. The American Standard Version, King James Version, the English Revised Version. They say members which are upon the earth, which is fairly close, 
Green's literal translation says members which are on the earth, which is almost the same thing. So there are many translations who translate that literally, members that are upon the earth. Other translations that are different than the Young's literal translation translate it differently. For example, the NASB, New American Standard Bible, says the members of your earthly body. The NIV says whatever belongs to your earthly nature is you need to put it to death. Now, I take objection to that because how can a man whose nature is essentially heavenly, a new man in Christ, how can he have an earthly nature? A heavenly nature and an earthly nature at the same time. Nature means your quintessence, your quiddity, as they say in philosophy. Your essential nature, who you are. You can't have two natures. A cat cannot have the nature of a dog. Gasoline cannot have the nature of water. And a new man cannot have the nature of an old man. So this translation is so loose it's bad. The Holman Christian Study Bible says, Put to death whatever in you is worldly. And that's a good one. Whatever in you is worldly. That's a little bit loose, but it's it's looser than the literal, but that's what the literal is getting at, I think. The ESV, the RSV says whatever is er- what is earthly in you needs to be put to death. What is earthly in you? Basically, Paul uses the word flesh to describe that when he, in Romans, so I'm just going to call it the flesh. Your members, that's your the fleshly body that are upon the earth. And again, it's a metaphor. Paul is not against the physical body. He's against the deeds that the physical body does. And so he uses your flesh, your members, as a metaphor talking about sins that are, that, are, that are done by you. So he doesn't mean to mortify your flesh with whips and thumbtacks and lying on nails. He means don't do the things that your fleshly members do here down here on the earth. Now he says put, these, put the flesh to death. Here's Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. There it sees more explicit there in Romans 8. He says don't put to death the body. But you put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death what the body does. And that's what Paul means. You do that, you will live. Galatians 5.24 and 25. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So let's don't talk about crucifying the old man in our current life as we strive for sanctification, let's talk about crucifying the flesh. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. To put to death means to deprive a thing of its power, to destroy its strength. Now note, this is, as I've said earlier, this is not the old man that is being put to death, it's the flesh. The old man has already been crucified. So we're not putting to death the old man. That happened when you were born again, when you were, were regenerated. I've got four scriptures that prove that beyond a shadow of doubt, to a reasonable certitude, and beyond any equivocation. Romans 6, 4, first part of the verse. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. Do you bury a new man, an alive man? If the old man is alive, why is he buried? You just buried alive, the old man? I don't think so. Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self, or our old man, was crucified with him. What part of crucified do we not understand? Man, when somebody is crucified, they are dead as they can be. Galatians 2, 19b. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Again, crucified? How does a live man survive a crucifixion and remain alive? Colossians 2.12a, when you were buried with him in baptism. Well, if you're buried, are you still alive? I don't think so. So, Scripture is very clear the old man is dead. Now, we have to make this distinction. You talk about the new man in Christ. You're raised with Christ and you're seated with the Messiah and God in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. And you have this wonderful new status as a new man you're living by the faith of the Son of God. Jesus is in you, the hope of glory, and all this wonderful stuff, and yet you have sin. And so 
people struggle with that. Theologians and Bible teachers struggle to express this intermediate state between being born again and being glorified, this intermediate transition state of our progressive sanctification. And so a lot of them come up with this terminology, the old man and the new man are fighting, and and you, whoever you give in to wins. So if you give in to the new man, you beat the old man. Well, that's horrible theology because it ain't true. Because the scripture clearly says that the old man is dead, crucified, buried. So how can you say the old man is still alive fighting a new man? Now, if by the old man you mean the flesh, well, then we might say, well, then we have a terminological problem. It's just a semantic problem. The flesh is that which is not part of your new nature, but which pulls you away from doing what your new nature ought to be doing. It's something that does not come natural to your new nature, but which is still possible to do. For example, I can speak some Chinese to you right now, but that doesn't make me Chinese. A goat can skateboard. I've got a picture of one on a PowerPoint. I've got goat is skateboarding, but that doesn't come naturally to him. The old Baptist preacher Adrian Rogers said that a Christian lapses into sin and loathes it. It doesn't come what's naturally to the new man, that sin. But on the other hand, a natural man, a a sinful man, an unbeliever, an unregenerate man leaps into sin and loves it. So he does what comes naturally. So we need to make that distinction. It's very, very important. If you start thinking of yourself as a sinner, I'm just a sinner, I'm just a miserable worm. Well, what do sinners do? They sin. If you think that's what you are as a sinner, well, by golly, you're going to go out and sin. A dog thinks he's a dog. That's why he barks all the time. A sinner thinks he's a sinner. He's going to sin all the time. And a new man in Christ is going to think he's a Christian. He's going to do acts of righteousness all the time, naturally, even though he might every now and then do something outside of his nature. Whoredom. As the Young's Little Translation has it, that's old-fashioned English. That means fornication, sexual sin. John Gill says it's, it's sexual sin of single people. I don't worry about those distinctions. The, the, it's, when it comes to sexual immorality, pornea, sexual immorality is any sex that's outside. Any, any sex that's outside of marriage is sexual sin. Whether it's single people, fornication, whether it's married people, adultery, whether it's with an animal, it's bestiality, it doesn't matter. Whether it's with a computer screen is pornography, that's outside of marriage. It's sin. Paul says that our, our fleshly members, our, our, our flesh, our members that are on the earth, our earthly members have evil desire. Now, he uses evil desire to distinguish good desire because there's some desires that are good. We've got to be careful when we are putting to death our flesh that we don't put to death the good things of our life. Nothing wrong with having sexual desire for your wife. There's nothing wrong with wanting good food. Nothing wrong wanting to sleep when you get sleepy. But it is wrong when those desires become inordinate. Lust. That's wrong. Or when they are, you have a desire for something at the wrong time in the wrong place, outside of God's will, whatever. So it's evil desires that we want to put to death, not good desires. John Gill, or excuse me, Adam Clark, distinguishes these evil desires from good desires by calling them unnatural and degrading passion, bestial lusts which is a good way to describe it. Put them to death, Paul says. Put to death these things. Paul mentions some of these bestial lusts in Romans 1, 26-27. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions, for even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In other words, they became lesbians. The males in the same way also left natural relations with females, heterosexual sex, and were inflamed in their lust for one another. So males had homosexual lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males. That would be things like, you know, 
fisting, rimming. Look that up if you want to get totally disgusted about the perverted acts of homosexuality that people are doing today and calling it marriage. Many committed shameless acts with males and received their own person the appropriate penalty of their error. Look at the health rate of homosexuals today. If it's not AIDS, it's TB or something else. They are not living healthily. They're receiving in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. This is sad, but oh no, we can't say anything bad about that. We might get our tax-exempt status revoked. We might be called a homophobe. Paul says to put to death the deeds, these evil deeds, these evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry how? You covet money, you're worshiping money, that's idolatry. We go to verse... 6, Colossians 3, because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. Because of all these evil sins that Paul's just talked about, including evil desires and covetousness and uncleanness and passion and all that kind of stuff. What happens? God's wrath comes on the disobedient. Now he's talking about unbelievers, not believers, but unbelievers, because believers don't have God's wrath on them. God's wrath is turned away from believers. His hostility, his Enmity between believers is destroyed when Christ died on the cross and we believe on that blood sacrifice that Jesus gave, the legal atonement, which declares us perfectly righteous. So wrath does not come on the Christian, but it does come on the disobedient, the non-believers. Now, no particular time is mentioned, but sooner or later, it's either coming later or it's already come, disobedient people are going to suffer the wrath of God. That's another thing that current wussy-pussy evangelical people who are scared of losing their tax-exempt status never talk about God's wrath. You know, maybe we ought to talk about that more because our loved ones are facing that. Whether we like it or not, whether they like it or not, it's going to happen. They're going to suffer the wrath of God unless they receive the Jesus the forgiveness of Jesus. So why not tell them about what's coming? Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Colossians 3, 7, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them, these sinful things. Here's some scriptures that show that they once walked in these things. Romans 7, 5, from when we were in the flesh, there's the earthly members, the flesh, the sins of the body. But here it's not talking about Christians walking that way. It's talking about non-Christians or Christians who used to be non-Christians. For when we were, past tense, in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. There's the law working through your sin, bearing fruit for death. That shows that the law produces death, as Paul mentioned in the last chapter, Colossians 2. Ephesians 2, 2, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler who exercised authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now walking in the disobedient, these sins which you previously walked in the past. So Paul is making a distinction between how they used to live and how they live now. Now, you know, you can't make a perfect distinction because sometimes Christians do things that are worthy of their un that are not worthy of their regenerate behavior <laughs> and sometimes non-christians do acts of civic righteousness they give money to the poor and they they give mass to hospitals and all that kind of stuff so the distinction is not perfectly distinct and plus the devil likes to come as an angel of light because people just recoil against evil they're, they're still enough of the image of god in people they don't like people that are out and out evil and so the devil's got to trick people into thinking that those that shiny exterior, that smile, the big bank account, the flashy car is a good thing when it's actually a bad thing. But evil unveiled in its nakedness tends to repel people. So you don't oftentimes see a complete contrast between people who are walking in the things, the evil desires of the world, as opposed to walking in Christ. There's not a stark contrast, but there is a general contrast that's very easy to see. 
And we need to make that as clear as possible. Colossians 3.8, But now you must also put away all the following, Paul continues, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Now notice that all of these bad fruit here, fruits here, are all from the tongue. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. These are all sins of the mouth. You know that old saying, sticks and stones can hurt my bones, but words can never hurt me, is an absolute lie. A lie of the bad spirit that lives in hell. It's a lie, folks. Words can do incalculable harm to people. I just heard, read a story about Bobby Mercer, the center fielder for the New York Yankees who took Mickey Mantle's place. He was a young rookie. He was in training camp. He was going to see if he could move from the outfield to shortstop, and he was playing short, and a scout, a coach, came up to him and said, you have the worst hands for a shortstop I've ever seen. And Bobby Mercer said he was pretty devastated by that. And then Elston Howard, the MVP catcher for the Yankees, goes up to this coach and says, if you say one more word to him like that, I'm going to beat your arse. I'm going to beat you up. So, Because he knew that, that those words could have destroyed Bobby Mercer's career and his confidence. So we need to remember that. we don't Christians don't talk nasty against people. Now that word filthy language, it could be blasphemy, unedifying talk, useless talk, flattery, false flattery, cursing, swearing, obscene language, coarse language. It's a little bit ambiguous. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, the context favors the translation abusive language rather than impure conversation. In other words, slanderous language rather than dirty language. Foul language best retains the ambiguity of the original. Okay, so we don't know what it is. Now, let me get on a little bit of a rabbit trail here and talk about exactly what is filthy language if you talk if, if it is dirty language. The word, it's ambiguous, so I'm going to assume that that would include dirty language, filthy language from your mouth. Well, cultural language, excuse me, obscene language is is culturally relative in a certain sense. For example, the word piss is in the King James Version. In, in the Elizabethan times, it just meant go to the bathroom. Later on, it became coarse, and now it's being used in, I know my Chinese students say it all the time, Christians, and they don't think a thing about it. And a lot of people in the press are now using it openly, and it's never censored by the the, the media. And so it's changed its its meaning. And so some people take that and say, well, see there, we can say whatever we want. It doesn't matter. For example, that guy, Mark Driscoll, I remembered his name finally in, up in the Northwest, had this church, and he was famous for using dirty language in his sermons. And he would say, well, that's because people up here use these words, coarse, coarse words as a matter of course, as a matter of fact, as a matter of routine, and it doesn't bother them, so it doesn't bother me to use it. And he had a point, and he would also say, but if I was in the South, People would take those words differently. I would never use them. And he still has a point. Now, if he came down to the South and said that in most churches I know, we'd carry him out horizontally. That'd be the end of that sermon. But what Mark Driscoll failed to realize is that every culture has dirty words. They're either scatological, referring to excrement or the, the, off, the byproducts of digestion, or they're sexual in the sense that they are impure sex not marriage sex. And the third thing they are is that they are blasphemous toward God. 
I learned, I thought about this because I was studying Chinese, and I said, "Yeah, look at here. They got the same words for these things that we do. They just have a different, little different way of expressing it. But it all boils down to this: scatology, excrement, blasphemy against God, or dirty sex. And in my opinion, there's too many Christians today who are using this type of language without being sensitive to how the language is being interpreted in their culture. I'm tired of the F word is now so common that it's People just put it in news reports or on blogs and put F star star star, but you know what it is, so when you read it, it has to go in your mind. So that now the word is everywhere. It used to be a gross obscenity, now it's becoming common. Now, of course, eventually, what pretty it might happen like piss. It might eventually the word might not mean anything. Well, don't. But that's okay. The culture will come up with something just as nasty to refer because people are evil. Their minds are running the gutter. Well, how do you solve this cultural? problem, this problem of relativity of what is obscene language. Here's my rule. One should never use a word which is offensive in the language of, at the place and time of, the hearer. Be sensitive to the hearer. You're talking to somebody that's 80 years old, you don't use the word piss. For example, Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Oh, that reminds i got to tell this story. It reminds me of a young Chinese convert who used to love, at random times, shouting out in public, in the presence of her Christian friends, S-H-I-T, loud. Well, of course, it didn't sound bad to her. She's Chinese. I told her she needed to stop doing that. Well, no, she wasn't going to stop doing that because she was cocky. So, one time, there was an old Chinese man walking near where she was seated, and I just said, I'm not even going to say it in Chinese. I said a Chinese word that was pretty gross to the Chinese. It didn't sound bad to me. It sounded like tomato to me. <laughs> if it didn't sound bad to me. And that Chinese girl jumped, no, 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 don't say that, don't say that. I said, why not? You say S-H-I-T all the time, doesn't bother you. I say this word all the time, doesn't bother me. Ho, ho, ho. Well, she got the point, I hope. I think she got the point. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Don't lie to one another. There's another sin of the tongue, which fits in with verse 8, where five, was it five sins of the tongue were mentioned? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language. There are five sins of the tongue. And now we have number six. Don't lie to one another. Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, Since you put away lying, speak the truth each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. Why would you lie to a member of your own body? Why, if your left hand has got a nail stuck in it, would the right hand say, Hey, your left hand, hey, left hand, you don't have a nail stuck in your hand. No, we don't lie to ourselves, or we shouldn't lie to ourselves, so why would we lie to each other? We don't, we respect our own members enough to, so that if our hand hurts, our brain says, hey, my, your, the hand, hand, you're hurting, we need to fix you. We cooperate as a body. Well, if we're a church body, we should do the same thing. We should speak truth to one another and not lie. This is something that I think that every Chinese Christian ought to memorize and meditate upon. I've never seen so much lying in my life in that culture. After spending 23 years there, it's, it's, a, it's a high art form. I remember one day in class, I said, this is a cultural thing. Chinese people lie to each other all the time. And most of them snicker because they knew it was true. But there was one girl who got her back up a little bit, and she said, we don't do that. We don't lie to our boyfriends. And I looked at her, I said, yes, you do, and you're lying to me now. And everybody laughed because they knew it was true. So, but it's not just Chinese. Everybody, we want to quit lying to one another. Speak the truth to one another. 
Now, that doesn't mean you go up and to say somebody that's fat, which is true, and say you are fat. You don't do that. Not speaking is not the same thing as lying. Not speaking a truth in that if told in undue season would hurt somebody. You keep your mouth shut about that. But if when you're normally talking to somebody and it's necessary, you speak the truth to them. If, if it's not necessary, you keep quiet about it. Why do you not lie to one another? Because, or since, you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, notice that tense there. You have put it off. That's past tense. The old self was put off when the old man was crucified, as I've emphasized over and over again. When did this happen? At the believer's regeneration, which means the old man is already put off which means we only have one nature that remains. That's the new man in Christ. Old man is dead. Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self, our old man was crucified. What part of crucified do we not understand? Now, there is a parallel scripture that says the similar idea. You have put off the old man in, in Ephesians. Excuse me. You, you have, yeah, you have put off the old self. This is in Ephesians 4, 21 through 22. And unfortunately, a lot of the translations for the Ephesian passages, passage is unclear. And it makes, it makes it sound like you need to put off the old man now. Well, how can you put off the old man now if the old man's already dead? I used to wonder about that. Well, let me read you a good translation of Ephesians 4, 21 and 22. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self. Now... The way the Homer Christian Study Bible says is in the past you heard and in the past you were taught to take off your former way of life. So what it means is the taking off of your former way of life, the old self, that was done in the past at the same time you heard about Jesus and you were taught about Jesus. So the old self is taken off in the past and you have no trouble. You make it match up with Colossians here with this verse in Colossians, Colossians 3.10. However, there's a lot of translations that don't do it that way and they translate, translate it this way. They say, put off the old man. They make it an imperative. Well, I look to check the Greek on this, and it's not an imperative. It's just like the Homer Christian Study Bible has it. It's an infinitive, and an infinitive doesn't have tense, doesn't show time. So, put off the old self. Jameson Fawcett Brown defines the old self or the old man as, quote, the unregenerate nature which he had before conversion. Yes, put off the old man means get saved. Kill the unregenerate man. Put on the new, you, as you were taught to put on the new self, when you were when the old man died, the new self came alive, Ephesians four twenty four, and you put on the new self, the new one created according to, according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that refers to the the new nature which you received at regeneration. So the putting off of the old man and the receiving of the new man both happened at the time that you got born again and you accepted Jesus to take away the sins in your life. This new self, notice in Ephesians 4.24, is created according to God's likeness in God's image. That's who we are now. We're the, we, we, much more than just the, the fact that we are created in God's image as a human being, but the fact that we are a new man, a new Adam, a new human being, if you will, we are now created according to God's likeness or God's image. And, and of course, God is righteous, he is pure, he is true, and that's what we, ref that we reflect, that image. Our new man is righteous, it is pure, and it is true. Maybe not perfectly yet, because we're not perfectly mature yet, but we share in God's righteousness and his purity and in his, and in his truth. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 10, that you are being renewed. You are being renewed. Now, this means that the old man, the new man, has to be 
brought to maturity. The new man is not, it's a new baby actually at first before it grows up into a complete new man, a new person, a new self. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Renew means new things have come. So make the old, make the new man new again. Make him grow up, in other words. Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind has already got some good righteous and pure thoughts in it. Well, let's make your righteous and pure thoughts come alive again and even get deeper next time. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The old man cannot be renewed, by the way. Why? Because you don't renew somebody that's dead. You look at a corpse, oh, we need to make him new. No, the corpse is dead. You don't renew an old man. The new man being renewed is progressive sanctification. He's not made completely mature all at once. Now, Paul here in Colossians 3.10 says, You are being renewed, how? In knowledge, according to the image of your Creator. You are being renewed in knowledge. Now, Paul talks about knowledge a lot in this book to the Colossians because he is is combating a Gnostic heresy, a legalistic Jewish heresy that's combined with Gnosticism. And Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. The Gnostic says if you have this esoteric, weird, do-do-do-do-do-do knowledge that we have to give you, all these secret formula and secret, secret formulations, passwords to get from one angelic hierarchy to the other, if you have all that stuff, well, then you've got the knowledge that you need for salvation. And Paul's saying, nope, if you were... renew the new man who's been created in the image of Christ, you renew him, then you will have the Christian knowledge that you need. You will have knowledge that's according to the image of your creator, not Gnostic knowledge, not false knowledge. So you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Uh, Let me, before I talk about image, let's talk about some scriptures that talk about the knowledge of God that Paul talks about in Colossians. Colossians 1.10, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. That's personal knowledge as well as as as, uh, knowledge about God, but also knowing God personally. Colossians 2, 2 2-3, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. So Paul talks about knowledge a lot because he's attacking Gnosticism, which is the false knowledge, and he's telling them, no, you've got the true knowledge, which is in Christ. Knowledge of God, knowledge of Christ. All right, so in verse 10, let me repeat this one more time. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. This, of course, is referring to Genesis 1:26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and so forth. So Adam Clark says we are a copy of God because we're made in his image. We share in his knowledge, in his righteousness, and his holiness. God has all knowledge. We have some knowledge. He has, he's perfectly righteous. We are partially righteous. He is perfectly holy. We are partially holy as we shed the things of this world. Now, there's a translation issue here in the Holman Christian Study Bible. Paul says that you should be renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Some translations have it according to the image of its creator, the new man's creator, or his his creator. For example, the NIV has its, to the 
being renewed according to the knowledge of its creator, i.e. the new man's creator. Montgomery Translation does the same. The New American Bible does the same. New American Standard Bible agrees with the Holman Christian Study Bible here and says you should be re- renewed according to the knowledge of the one who created him. Of the one, excuse me, of the one who created him, not it, but him. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. God created the new man, or he created you, Colossians, in his image, or he created the new man in his image. This idea of the new man being created in the image of God is also expressed in Ephesians 4.24. You put on the new self, the one created how? Created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Homo Christian Study Bible adds likeness in the in brackets. It can mean image, same thing, at least in English. So there's an analogy between the cre- creation of mankind physically and the creation of the new man spiritually, as Jameson Fawcett, Fawcett and Brown point out. The first man was Adam, and he was created by God. He bore the image of God, 1 Corinthians 11:7. A man, in fact, should not cover his head because he is God's image. The second man, the new man, was created by God. The new man bears the image of God, as Paul says here in verse 10, Colossians 1. You're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So isn't that something? Adam is created in the image of God, the old man, then the old man sinned, and now the new man is created in the image of God. There's a parallel there. God is taking the wrecked old human race, and he says, we're not going to stop here. We're going to end up with a new human race, the new Adam, the head of which is Christ. The old Adamic race, the fallen race, was headed by Adam. He sinned, but now we've got a sinless one who's head of the new human race, that sinless one is Jesus. Colossians 3.11, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, when he's, it says Christ is in all, it means in all cultures and all races and all nations, as the NIV Study Bible says, and that's really true. Christianity is all over the world. Jesus, you know, it's really funny. People who worship Jesus focus on Jesus. They don't focus on all this multicultural garbage that is preached in the universities today. What it means is if you're, if you're a Christian or if you are a white person, well, to Hades with you. And then they exalt every other culture in the world. But it's interesting that Christians don't ever worry about stuff like that. But we are multicultural. We are all over the world and every race, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. There's Christians everywhere. I'm on a prayer line now. There's lots of Africans. I've been to Africa. There's Christians everywhere in Africa. I've been in China, a lot of Chinese churches. I mean, we are a multiracial, multi-ethnic organization, uh, I shouldn't say organization, uh, enterprise. Let's put it that way. And yet we don't focus on multiculturalism. We focus on Jesus. It's another example. You want to get rid of sin, focus on Jesus. So when Paul says in Colossians 3.11, Christ is in all, it means in all cultures. It does not mean in all People, because if Christ was in every individual person, like Paul Pot and Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping and all these Christ haters out there, well, if Jesus was in all those people, that would be absurd. But it means in all different groups in the world. So the all there should not be taken exhaustively as everybody without exception. It should be taking, taken non-exclusively. Christ is in all without distinction. John Gill says that when Christ is in all, it means in all places. I don't think so. That seems like a stretch to me. He's just in all groups of the world. And Paul mentions some of the groups. For example, circumcision and uncircumcision. Those are the two big dividing lines in the human race that Paul was constantly concerned about because of his background. But also he mentions barbarians. That's someone who didn't speak 
Greek and was therefore thought to be uncivilized. The Greeks listened to that those foreign languages around them, and it sounded like bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbarians. Scythians, that's from what is today southern Russia. They also between the north of the Black Sea and between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea north of Armenia and there, that was Scythia. Also in the northeastern edges of the Persian Empire in what is today Central Asia, that's Scythia. That's what the ancients called Scythia because they were wild barbarians. They were considered by some to be no better than wild beasts, as the NIV Study Bible says. And Paul is saying, look, even they could be saved. I mean, you know, Scythians can be slaves. Californians can be slaves. Anybody can be saved. They were regarded, these Scythians, as more barbarian than the barbarians, and yet, yet they could be saved. Slave and free, economic status doesn't matter. Christ is in all who believe in him. He's the first. He's all and in all. When it says Christ is all, that's the name of a book by David Gay, the prominent New Covenant theologian. John Gill says that when, it, when Paul says that Christ is all, it means that Christ is the first cause of everything. He has the fullness of the Godhead, and in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. As Paul says in the letter to the Colossians previously, as John Gill says, that all the perfections of the deity are in Christ. Colossians 3.12, therefore God's chosen one. Now, again, what Paul is doing here, he's talking about who we are in Christ and who Christ is in. He's talking about Jesus, 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 and he's in us, and he, he's in all people that believe in him, and since Jesus is in us, that means that's going to have an effect on how we walk in this life. That's kind of his operating scheme here. So now he's going to talk about how to walk based upon who Jesus is and where he is in the Christian. Colossians 3.12, Therefore God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul is saying, look, you put on the new man when you got born again, verse 10, and now here in verse 12, let's put on some righteous acts. The metaphor comes from putting on clothes. And you do have to put on clothes. You just can't get up in the morning and the clothes come on you. You've got, you've got to go into your closet and put on the clothes. Likewise, if you're going to walk out your new nature in Christ in this world, you've got to consciously put on the clothes. We don't want to be passive. Paul tells the Colossians that they're God's chosen ones. Just like in the Old Testament, the Jews were the chosen people. Likewise, in the New Testament, the new Israel is the, are the chosen people. In the Old Testament, we read, we read in Deuteronomy 4.37, because he loved your fathers, he chose their descendants. He elected them. In the New Testament, talking about the new Israel, 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, an elect race, a royal priesthood and so forth. So both Old Testament and New Testament people of God are the elect. There's a lot of other verses. I'll just read you one here. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, knowing your election, brothers, loved by God, and knowing your choice, your election. As the NIV Study Bible says, divine election is a constant theme in Paul's letters. You wouldn't know it by listening to Methodist or Charismatics or Pentecostal or Baptist sermons. But if you read the Bible instead of just listening to the sermons, you will find out that election is just everywhere. But as the NIV Study Bible points out, the Bible never teaches that election dulls human responsibility. Of course not. In fact, this verse shows that the purpose of the election was to bear fruit. God's elect ones put on compassion, kindness, humility, you're elect first, and as a result of your election, therefore, do all these righteous acts. There is no false dichotomy between election and good works. Good works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. Paul says that the Colossians should put on humility. 
There's another good verse that Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 5. In the same way, you younger men be subject to the elders, and all of you should clothe yourselves with humility. There's that clothing metaphor again. Put on humility. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Remember that old country song by Mac Davis? Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. (laughs) Well, he was using that in an ironic fashion, that word humble. But I'm telling you, it is hard to be humble. Every Christian, I don't care how humble they are, they think they are, they're not. We are proud human beings. And the whole Christian experience is God teaching you how humble you need to be. I've been there. Every Christian's been there. So Paul says, you know, and you just might as well try to get learn that lesson quickly so you don't have to be beaten over the head with a two-by-four. God tries to teach you humility. Paul mentions that the Colossians should be patient. That almost sounds like you put up with something for a long time. But it, well, that's exactly that. It does mean that, but it means more like endurance. You put up with stuff that's just about to grind you down, and you, in, you endure. In fact, the KJV has long suffering. You suffer for a long time. That's one of the things that we are able to do because that's one of the of the that's a wardrobe. That's part of our wardrobe. You look in the closet looking for spiritual fruit. That's something you can put on is long suffering. You can put up with something for a long time. You can put up with coronavirus quarantines. Colossians 3:13 through 14 accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another just as, as the Lord has forgiven you so you must also forgive above all put on love the perfect bond of unity he's still talking about putting on stuff all right so he says accepting one another then he has bearing with one another that means tolerating one another don't render evil for evil don't seek revenge don't irritate one another don't provoke one another he says you must forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. He said the same thing in Ephesians 4.32. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. It is impossible to live a Christian life in a body of Christ somewhere without somebody offending you. I mean, <laughs> I had a brother, a really nice guy, but he got ticked off by something I said on one of my YouTube videos. And, you know, he's a dispensationalist and I'm not. And I'm sure that's what it was. It was something about that. And we had a theology night meeting at my church, and he just unloaded on me and said all kinds of very unpleasant things. And uh, it was awful. <laughs> I mean, and I'm sensitive. Well, his wife got on him and said, you, you know, you shouldn't have done that. And he apologized to me the next Sunday, and, and it's over. Well, I had to immediately say, look, don't get mad at this guy. Forgive him. Actually, forgiveness is impossible in the natural, but it, it, it gets to be quite easy when you walk it in Christ. When your new man is putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you can forgive people. But boy, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you working on you, you'll hold a grudge forever. I just saw a, a review of a new documentary that came out. I love NBA basketball, and it turns out that Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas are angry at one another. For something that happened in 1991, I know it because I saw the game when it happened, and I've seen the clip of it a, mil- a million times. And Isaiah Thomas really did something he shouldn't have done, and Michael Jordan still hadn't forgiven him for it. So Isaiah Thomas then made a public apology: "I shouldn't have done it." And doggone if Michael Jordan says, "I don't care what he says; he's not really apologizing from his heart. He's just apologizing because the public got mad at him for what he did by not shaking my hand when we beat him in the 1991 semifinals game." And see, that's how the world does it. 
You can forgive, but no, I don't accept your forgiveness. Folks, when you, somebody asks your forgiveness, you better forgive them. You accept their apologies and say, fine, don't worry about it. Let's move on. And mean it in your heart. Otherwise, you'll end up like Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas forever. Paul says, above all, put on love. Above all what? Well, above all those first five fruits that he mentioned in verse 12. Above compassion, above kindness, above humility, above gentleness, above patience, put on love. Because love includes all of the above. Love is the perfect bond of unity. The perfect bond of unity. The idea of perfect, of course, has the idea of maturity, as we know. Perfect has two senses, really means perfect as an absolutely perfect, or a perfect in the sense of mature, which means grown up. You know, a mature man can be grown up, but it doesn't mean he's completely perfect. So anyway, and I think that here we're talking about not complete perfection, because no Christian church could be completely perfect, but love could be uh, as much as, as possible in this life, can create a bond of unity amongst sinful Colossians, amongst sinful Christians, because you love one another, you're not going to say bad things about them, you're not going to be angry toward them, you're not going to commit slander against them, you're just not going to do that. And Christians do love one another. I've seen it over and over again, people I would never spend the time of day with if I was not saved, but I'm in church with them. Next thing I know, I am worried about their finances and their family problems and everything. You know, you just end up caring for people. Let's talk about this idea of love and perfection or love and maturity. 1 John 2, 5. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected. The love of God is brought to maturity in the lives of believers. 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us or is brought to maturity in us. So we love one another. God loves us. And we love God more and more. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now that peace of Christ, that could be the peace that believers have with Christ, or with God. John Gill suggests that. Or it could be the peace which exists, or should exist, between the saints. Or it could refer to the internal psychological peace of mind that you have when you believe in Jesus. And that's the way I've always taken it, especially when that phrase, in your hearts, seems to indicate this. But it could be, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart so that you don't say all these bad things against your Christian brothers and therefore violate the unity that love brings about in its perfect bond. So be at peace with your brothers. It could go either way, or it could include all, all of the above. We tend to be sort of individualistic when we interpret things because we're Westerners, but I think that Paul could be talking about individual peace or bind. But the context, as I said, is talking about relations with other Christians because he says in verse 15 here, to, uh, the peace to which indeed you were called in one body. So he's talking about peace in the body of Christ. So let the peace of Christ rule in your plural hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. So he's probably telling the Corinthians to be in a bond of love with one another, at peace with one another. It's probably not talking about internal psychological peace of mind. Probably. However, I know it's true individually, psychologically, and even if it's not, we can go to Philippians 4, 7 and read this, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I suspect that's talking about individually there. Paul says you're called together in one body. A body at war with itself is a sick body. Ephesians 4, 4 says there is one body and one spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One body, one spirit. I mean, <laughs> we're called in one body 
think about a body at war with itself. You get the coronavirus. Your antibodies kick in and attack the coronavirus, but your antibodies are not used to this coronavirus, so your antibodies are too strong, and start, and so your antibodies start attacking healthy cells as well as the coronavirus. And so your own immune system destroys the body, and the body dies. That's what happens when a body gets at war with itself, and no church should be at war with, with itself because the church will not last long if that happens. I've just heard a story. It was a Zoom church meeting. Well, not Zoom. It was a different program, but it was one of these uh, Internet church meetings because of the quarantine, the co- coronavirus quarantine, and the brethren started arguing about their governor's decision to open up the state. He's lying. We're all going to die from the coronavirus. And then, of course, somebody says, no, he's not lying. And somebody says, well, you'd believe anything he says because he's a Republican. And, you know, just wrangling. And so my friend, who was one of the el- three elders of the church, said, uh-uh. It, it, everything spoken here has to be done for edification. This is not edifying. We're not going to wrangle. And somebody says, we have the right to say anything in church. And he says, no, you don't. No, you don't have the right to say anything in church because we need to have peace rule in your hearts. I'm glad I wasn't there to witness that. Now, when Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he's taken one more metaphor from the Olympic Games. He loves the Olympic Games. He, he must have because he uses metaphors from them all the time. Adam Clark and John Gill says, say, say that the judge or an umpire or moderator would decide who won in an Olympic contest. And so here he's saying, Peace is going to win. <laughs> peace is going to win. Let the peace of Christ be the judge in your hearts in, in the contest, if you will. And the umpire is going to look and says, hmm, we've got peace versus strife, peace versus strife. We're going to let peace win. That's who's going to, that's who's going to win. Well, that might be a little bit strained, but us two commentators say it's an athletic metaphor, so I'll let it go. Peace's decision is final. No more strife. And Paul ends up verse 15 by saying, be thankful. Yeah, be thankful your church doesn't have any strife in it. I'm telling you, most of my Christian life has been in churches with no strife. But I have every now and then experienced some world-class strife. And there ain't nothing worse, folks. Let the peace of Christ rule in your body, in your hearts, to which you indeed you were called in one body. Ladies and gentlemen, with that exhortation of Paul in verse 15, we are finished with Colossians 3. We'll take up Colossians 3.16 in the next audio. In chapter 3, all the way from verse 16 to the end at verse 25, Paul is going to talk about walking out this position in Christ that we have, living out this new nature that we have. He's going to talk about how we do it in church relationships and in family relationships. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.